0: Dr. John Mulder currently serves as the executive director for the Trillium Institute, chief medical consultant for hospice and palliative care for Holland Home, and the executive director of palliative services for University of Michigan Health West in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We talk about how he got started in palliative care well before it was a recognized subspecialty, how the specialty has changed, and he helps to clear up some confusion about who should be referred to palliative care. We also discussed how more palliative care referrals can improve outcomes and decrease the cost of care, and what systemic changes can help to make that happen more often. Dr. Mulder has an appointment as assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine, where he also serves as the director of the Division of Palliative Medicine, and he's also currently the director of the Mercy Health Grand Rapids Hospice and Palliative
1: Medicine Fellowship Program. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. John Mulder, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
2: I'm thrilled to be here with you, Brad. It's just a delight to be invited.
1: So
0: how did you end up in palliative care?
2: It's a great question. I get it a lot because I've been here since 1984, so going on 40 years, 38 years now. And it was sort of an accidental entry into the field. It probably had its roots when I was in med school. My dad was diagnosed with stomach cancer and died a year later. So while I was in medical school, I was dealing with my dad's death which, quite frankly, was a very difficult, if not traumatic, thing for him and for the family. He suffered a lot of symptomatology that was not really adequately managed. And when we got closer to his death, we were not prepared as a family. He was not prepared. So there's just a lot of unsettling that went on with that. He died five days before I graduated from med school. So I graduated, moved on, did residency. When I went to family medicine, which is my primary specialty, Within the first year of practice, I was asked to serve on the board of directors of a small community hospice that had started up recently. The hospice Medicare benefit only came into being in 1982, and this was 1984, so it was still a relatively burgeoning field. The initial hospices only started in the United States in 1974, and that really spread across the pond from England where named Cicely Saunders had started St. Christopher's Hospice in 1969. So it wasn't that old. So I was asked to serve on the board. I had some bandwidth, so I did. And over the years, I became very kind of attracted. There was a real existential pull to the field of hospice. And ultimately, this same organization asked me to serve as their medical director, which I did part-time. So through the 90s, there really was a movement that was growing here in the country of people that did what I did. Most of us did part-time or nominal hospice work. I'm not even sure when the word palliative was actually invented in that realm uh, of advanced illness care. But we would go to conferences, it might be a hospice conference, or it might be a family medicine conference, and those of us that were doing this work coalesced into a corner of a room to talk about what we did. And ultimately through the 90s, there was an opportunity to begin to coalesce into starting a specialty, which we officially launched in 1997. And it was the American Board of Hospice and Palliative Medicine and started offering board certification exams at that point in time. In 2000, now board certified myself, I took an invitation to serve a full-time role in a large hospice in Nashville, Tennessee. So it was the first time that I'd ever lived outside the state of Michigan, moved to Nashville, also took a position at Vanderbilt University and began teaching at their medical school, end-of-life care and started a clinic in the cancer center there. So one of the early embedded palliative clinics within a cancer center was in 2001. Through that time then, we started seeing a really great evolution in understanding and creative evolution of palliative programs. And I was able to start not only that clinic there and working in that environment, but also to start palliative programs at a number of different hospital systems in Nashville. And ultimately, 2006, I was recruited back to Michigan to a company called Holland Home. Holland Home is one of the largest provider of elder care services in the state of Michigan. We're 130 years old this year, uh, not-for-profit faith-based institution. And on any given day, we're caring for close to 5,000 individuals within our various domains and services. So I helped them with their hospice development. I began palliative care programs in the hospitals here in the Grand Rapids area. We started a hospice and palliative fellowship program. We started an educational institute and just did a lot of things palliative that really began helping to set a standard of expectation and quality of end-of-life care here in the West Michigan area that we think is uh, really pretty good. How did it get started? It probably, the table was set through my dad's negative experience, and the exposure to it in my early days of the practice really kind of engendered the love that I really still have for the field.
0: So as one of the almost founders of the field. You've been in it this long. How have you seen the field evolve?
2: I don't know that I would qualify as a founder, but I certainly am one of the earlier ones through the gate.
0: Pioneer would be a better (laughs) (laughs) word.
2: Reluctantly, one of the first out of the gate, yeah. As far as how it's evolved, it really has been, to me, both rewarding, fascinating, and frustrating all at the same time. The initial impetus for the rapid growth of hospice and palliative care came about through the government's passing of the hospice Medicare benefit. And that provided a funding stream for end-of-life care. That mandated that hospices have a medical director serving in a consulting role with the hospice team, which is still quarterbacked by a nurse and their social worker and, and chaplaincy and volunteers that are part of that team as well. But they all had to have a medical director. So now you had hospices looking for people that were interested in doing this kind of work. And along with that, though, again, those of us that were in the field and really looking at what we were doing, it seemed to be a somewhat odd conundrum. If you were qualifying for hospice, in other words, if you met the prognostic guidelines that the law required, you got some really outstanding medical care, very sophisticated and high end symptom management opportunities, as well as all the psychosocial stuff. And it struck some of us as odd that you had to be within the last six months of life to really be able to get this really outstanding care and so you started seeing more and more development of palliative care programs they started in hospitals but then extended into clinics situations home situations and in, in which we were working to try to provide outstanding and expert symptom management to people who may not necessarily meet the prognostic criteria for hospice services but they still deserve and still could be recipients of really good symptom management care, or the opportunity to have these great goals of care conversations. As I sometimes will tell patients, you know, my job is twofold: one is to help make you feel better. And two is to help you strategically plan for what lies ahead. And so we started to see then the evolution of those sorts of programs. And over the last 20 years, since I was doing this full time, we've seen significant explosion of the palliative care programs in hospital systems to where most hospitals the vast majority of hospitals, certainly over three, 400 bed size, have some element of palliative care program. And even many smaller ones do as well. So we've seen those continue to grow in size and sophistication to now where it is the norm to have palliative care programs in hospital systems. That simply was not the case 20 years ago. They were seen as an afterthought or footnote. And now they're fully integrated in many hospital systems. Hospice care has grown. We now have gone to literally in 1974 when they started, and you have a handful of volunteer organizations, to now there's over 5,000 Medicare-certified hospices here in the United States. And as I mentioned, most hospital systems have palliative care programs. And we see greater evolution of community-based palliative care programs. So hospices are creating these side businesses or side arms of their hospice business model to include now clinical opportunities for palliative services, clinics or home-based services. So that's been really neat to see that developed as well. There still is a huge gap. We still have a very significant issue in terms of making sure that both the public as well as the medical establishment understand what we do, why we do it, how it's a benefit to both the providers and the patients and community themselves.
0: One thing I'd like a little clarification on is the difference between palliative care and hospice. Correct me if I'm wrong. Hospice is a subset of palliative care, right? Hospice is if your prognosis is six months or less, then you qualify for hospice, whereas palliative care extends
2: beyond that. Sure. It's a great question, and it's one that we get a lot. And because palliative grew out of the hospice environment, they're understandably remains some confusion to the point where people sometimes are reluctant to think about, talk about, or accept palliative care because they still have this image that somehow it's related strictly to death or end-of-life issues. You know, I remember having a physician come up to me and say, oh, there's somebody I want you to see, but I don't think they're ready yet. And I said, my job is to help relieve the burden of suffering and improve their quality of life. Help me understand when someone's not ready for that and it was really clear that his narrow focus was on just end-of-life issues. So you are correct. Palliative care, I view most simply as a medical subspecialty, and people should seek palliative specialists much as they seek out a cardiologist, dermatologist, or whatever you want when they have issues that are specifically relevant to the field of palliative care. And what are those? Someone who has a complex Advanced or chronic disease, which is providing some element of symptom burden to the patient that is not being relieved by standard means, someone who is suffering should see a palliative specialist. It has nothing to do at that point with end of life care. It has nothing to do with death or dying. It simply has to do with improving the quality of life.
0: John, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that was confusing to me because we sometimes have patients that are challenging to manage. For instance, in otolaryngology. Sure. We see a lot of patients with dizziness. So, if I have a patient with a more severe case of Meniere's disease, it's not a terminal diagnosis. But if their dizziness has been difficult to manage, would this be appropriate for palliative care? Like, I don't, I just don't understand where it begins and ends.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question as far as where is the dividing line in terms of what the symptoms are that we can effectively manage. And You just pretty much have to start going down the list of what are the types of symptoms that are problematic for people. Number one probably is pain. We see that a lot. And you mentioned, you know, being an otolaryngologist, I spent a lot of time in three different cancer-based palliative clinics taking care of head and neck cancer patients. And so within the context of that, I became very, very skilled in managing the pain symptoms, whether it be hypersecretion or, or xerostomia, the patients will have relative to their presence in their cancer treatments and you know, the aftermath of surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. And so there's a lot of stuff that I do creatively in head and neck cancer that some other palliative docs may not necessarily have as much experience with. So some of the opportunities are reliant upon the background of the specialists that you're working with. And the more you work with them, you get a good idea as to what their capabilities are. And someone who presents with dizziness, I quite frankly wouldn't necessarily presume that I know more about treating dizziness than any ENT doc would. That's where you guys live and that's where you work and that's a very common thing that you deal with. I quite frankly, in my patient population, don't see that quite as much because you all do a great job managing that.
0: But to bring up head and neck cancer, the patient doesn't necessarily need a terminal diagnosis. For instance, if you had someone who had stage three HPV related responds well to chemo radiation surgery. They're treated aggressively, but now they're having dysphagia. Now they're having trouble handling their secretions. Maybe they have a persistent tracheostomy. So if it was just pain, fine, we'll refer them to pain management and and they can help us manage the pain. But some of these patients that have complex social issues, getting tube feedings and other things like that, where it's not just pain, but there's a lot more to it. Would that be something we would refer to you?
2: Absolutely. If I think back to my cancer center experiences with head and neck cancers, probably half of the patients that I cared for in those environments were cancer free. And they were living with the consequences of their therapy, whether it be a surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, or usually combinations of all of the above. It might have be, been, you know, painful disfiguring surgery, it might be you had mentioned stomas that have that have challenges in terms of voice management, things of that sort. Those are areas that I have had some element of success in helping people through using some palliative skills along with the skills of the surgeons and otolaryngologists that have cared for them. So where hospice comes into play is when someone has a limited prognosis. In other words, whatever they've got going on that has yielded issues and problems in the first place has now progressed to the point where if the disease runs its normal course, we would anticipate death to occur within six months. Now, certainly people who are admitted into hospice are going to get great palliative care because that element of symptom management is going to continue. And so all hospices have medical directors who are overseeing the care along with their patients attending. And so they get the good palliative interventions, but now they get the benefit of the additional parts of the hospice team that really help with some of the psychospiritual issues as they move forward through the course of their disease.
0: Okay. So I think I understand it a bit better because you have all of these other providers at your fingertips. You're like the coach of the team. So you were in touch with social work, physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, respiratory pain control, clergy. So you've got all of these providers at your fingertips and know when to employ them and how to employ, them, deploy them, I guess.
2: Yeah, sure. And it really boils down to what are the issues that the patient's experiencing and how can we best address them. You talked about quarterbacking. I remember back into my family medicine days, and quite frankly, as I reflect back, a lot of what I did as a family doc could rightly fall into the category or under the umbrella of palliative types of practice. I've got someone who has advanced illness, chronic disease, and I'm helping to manage and manipulate um, the system around them. For they, for them to be able to, to feel as best they can and to function as best as they can. So, as long as I'm able in the center to help to coordinate those types of things, then we can see good things happening. And I would do that as a family doctor, which sometimes the model with family medicine is more linear. The uh, patient comes in, routine screening mammogram is positive, and you refer off to the surgeon. They get a biopsy that is positive, and they get referred off to the, um, to the breast surgeon, they get referred off to the radiation therapist and maybe the oncologist. And further down the line, six months later, the the doctor runs into the husband at the local grocery store and wonders how his patient's doing because he's had no follow-up. He's had no engagement, no involvement since he referred out. And I think that there's a better model in play in which I could extend that to family medicine uh, specialists as well. But for me as a palliative doc, I need to have my finger on that pulse through everything to make sure that, first of all, they're making decisions that are consistent with their values. Because for me, that's, a, that's one of the most essential, important parts of what I do. People encounter choices in healthcare all the time. And sometimes they make choices which are really great opportunities and options. And sometimes, and you've probably seen it, I know that I've seen it in the hospitals, you'd scratch your head and say, how did this patient get here in this condition, knowing what was going on, and they made some choices that clearly were not consistent with their values, but no one was there to, no one was there to guide them through the decision-making process. So I really think that we, in, in a quarterbacking fashion, to use an analogy that you set up, have, have the opportunity to help walk people through these experiences.
0: If we do have a patient who we think would be an appropriate referral, how do we make sure we have the most productive conversation possible, right? because. People often hear palliative and they think hospice, right? They think the end of life is we're giving up. It's defeat. So how do we make sure that our messaging is appropriate when we're talking to families and patients?
2: Again, great question, Brad. The way that I approach it is, first of all, I try to get some insight from the patient and I'll ask them what the docs are telling them, what's going on? And through that process, then gain some insight as far as what do they know about their disease state? what the circumstances are, do they have an understanding about prognosis, the basic what's going on and what do you know about what's going on. We'll ask them what the plan is moving forward. What's happening now and what do they anticipate happening in the future to get a sense as to what kind of conversations they've had about about uh, you know advanced care planning or about the options that lie ahead. Uh, should the disease progress or is there curable intent or what is the, you know, what are the opportunities here? Once we get that on the table, then the question that I ask Is what is sacred to you? And that's why I really try to get into a values oriented conversation with them. People don't have a problem answering that. What is important to you? And especially if they've recognized within the first question or two that life is short, that they have a disease that conveys some limited prognosis, then it's given that life is short, what do you hope to accomplish between now and when you die? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? And what kind of messages do you want to leave for your family? So what is important to you? What is sacred to you? And then the last question that I ask them, is the plan that's in place right now helping you achieve what is important to you? And that usually gives some opportunity for pause as, as they really think about the options that have been laid out for them. They're, it can go anywhere from a cancer patient who is being devastated by chemotherapy. I had one patient that her words were cancer. Uh, It took away my years, but my chemotherapy is taking away my days. And it really was an interesting and if not somewhat stunning revelation to her that she was not able to accomplish what she wanted to accomplish in life uh, because the ravages of the treatment were completely uh, avoiding her, were completely preventing her from achieving Uh, The meaningful things for her in life. And yet she was still declining. She was still dying and not able to do what she wanted to do in life because of the consequences of treatment. So that's why I ask those kinds of questions. On, on the other end, we certainly see people who are really encouraged by the results of their treatment. They're getting, in the ca- case of cancer, they're getting you know, tumor reduction, or they're getting, they're getting new life, new opportunities, which is great. We, uh, we might see someone with uh, non-cancer diagnoses, and through uh, our, our interventions, we've allowed someone with, with ALS to become more independent, more functional, more interactive, more communicative. And so that we have the opportunities to really see these types of interventions that come through a palliative plan of care that really allow us to address their values, what's important to them, and then help to create the plan of care accordingly.
0: I'm not clear on some of the verbiage. I know you can't really tell us what to say, but maybe a better way for me to ask the question would be, what are some of the pitfalls? What are some things that we shouldn't be saying to the families in order to get them to follow through with the referral?
2: Yeah, I think that probably some of the pitfalls that I've seen, if on the end of the physician who's thinking to himself or herself that golly, I think this might be a patient who would be who would warrant a palliative referral. Things not to say: I'm sorry, there's nothing else we can do, so I'm going to have to go see this palliative provider that tends to be very demoralizing for patients and i think it's it's an inappropriate uh way to approach the uh, the conversation i think that it's very appropriate to be able to say as we've worked through this process it really appears that this condition is proving to be more challenging to either treat or cure or remit and this is going to continue to result in a burden uh, that's going to be laid upon you there are going to be symptoms that are going to keep you from enjoying life And I want to really help you achieve as much as you can, given the limitations that this disease imposes. So I'm going to ask you to see one of our palliative specialists. What they do is precisely what I suggested. They're going to help you uh, figure out how to best manage the symptoms so that you can do the best and feel the best that you possibly can. We'll continue to work together on the disease management piece that we're working on now. But I think that they could really help you live better. And so that's really what I would like you to do. So that kind of language, there, the, some of the, the negative messaging that is going on is this, again, we've alluded already to the uh, perspective of the palliative is, is only death and dying, which, which it's not, or that somehow it means that we're giving up, which is absolutely false. That's, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. There's no issue of giving up or resigning yourself or anything like that. It's just acknowledging the reality of a very serious disease and looking for every option to help to improve the patient's well-being, quality of life, and symptom burden.
0: So my next question was going to be, if there's a trainee out there listening and considering palliative care, what is your elevator pitch? I almost feel like I don't even need to ask it because of the passion that comes across in how you talk about this, right? You clearly love what you do, which is why you've done it in so many different capacities. Nonetheless, I'm still going to ask it. What is your elevator pitch for going into palliative care?
2: I sometimes will ask uh, the students what they are loving uh, about their medical education experience up till now. Where are they finding their passion? What do they wake up in the morning excited to do? What kind of rotations have they found a lot of affinity and affection for? What sort of rotations have they perhaps didn't feel quite so strongly about? How do they feel about personal interactions with their patients? Because there are some people who clearly realize early on, these students, that that they're really outstanding technicians. But as I had one guy said, I love doing this. I really don't like people. You're probably not going to do very well in a palliative field, but you could be brilliant in other areas of medicine. So you try to get an idea of the kind of the difference between both a relational aspect in medicine and a transactional aspect in medicine. I think that one of the things that you have to be able to do in this field is be willing to and enjoy the interpersonal connection with people. We are working at a very intimate level with them. And if you uh, don't like getting engaged with people's values and their stories and their their emotions, then you're probably not going to have a, a real good success here. On the other hand, if you really love getting involved with people at the most sensitive and in vulnerable times in their lives and being able to, on a very short term basis, make a real positive difference in their life that just changes their, the the character of their lives and improves their quality of life and really makes a positive difference for them, then this is a great place to be.
0: This question actually came from my wife who, not a physician, but she often helps me come up with my questions. Yeah. And I think I know the answer, but we'll see if I'm right. Her thought was that doing what you do, right? All of your patients are, or many of your patients are end of life care, right? Yeah. Now, I think the answer to that is all of our patients are going to die eventually. So if we think we can stave off death, if we have any patients that are immortal out there, we need to make (laughs) the whole world aware of it. But how do you not end up taking this home with you and suffering yourself?
2: Tell your wife she's wise and very intuitive. And as for the, the immortality part, I, I have actually once had a doc come up and said, boy, I really admire what you do. I could never work in a field where all my patients died. And I looked at him for a moment to see if he would appreciate the idiocy of what he just said. And he, he didn't. So I called him on it. And then he says, well, you know what I mean? And I said, the problem is that attitude is what challenges uh, us. You know, we we need to be upfront and honest about that. And certainly the reality is, is that my patients are going to die sooner than yours most likely and in many circumstances they're going to die under my watch and there are two issues of that one is that there's a lot of areas of medicines and there's a lot of excuse me there are a lot of areas of medicine in which we need to learn how to compartmentalize and i think as physicians we're pretty good at that we we can focus on the need at hand and recognize that this is not my illness, it is their illness. I can certainly feel sad about that. I can certainly have uh, both empathy, compassion, sympathy. I have all those sorts of things to people that are having really difficult circumstances in their lives. But when I go home, I have a different life that's home for me. And and I feel the sorrow, but I don't let it invade my life. Now, that might be just some element of psychology in which those of us who do this are, are wired. But I will have to tell you that the vast majority of the feelings that I have are not of the sadness and they are not of the despondency of recognizing someone else's seriousness and terminality. It's actually quite the opposite. I will see someone who has a very desperate circumstance. And I did something today that made a positive difference in their life, that that they are grateful for, that really made a positive difference in their life, and that is going to really make a, a, a huge difference in their lives in the next few days, weeks, or months, who knows. And so I take a lot of that satisfaction home with me, that I did something today that was positive in the life of somebody. I think that within the hospice community, more so than the palliative community, you know, we've got these nurse case managers that are intimately engaged in these families for anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months and they die. And they're caring for 15 families at a time. And one dies and they've got to emotionally deal with that loss to them personally because they've engaged uh, a meaningful relationship with this family and now they're gone. And so they and they have to just put that aside and then move on to the next family. We do a lot of work within the hospice community of uh, cumulative. Uh, grief and helping people with with managing the, the, the consequences of, of that. And so, there's a lot of self-care work that we do. As physicians, we work with our colleagues, both within, for example, within my practice, but, but also regionally, we have a coalition of palliative docs that get together. And then we certainly have a national network of docs, and we have a lot of different things that we do together. And those processing opportunities really do help to I think mitigates some of the, the personal sadness we might feel uh, from the love of someone that really has become close to us. Because you know, certainly some patients become more dear to us than others based on our personality resonance, uh, the time we've gotten to know them, and certainly a lot of other factors. Uh, again, my dad dying young at uh, he was fifty three when he died, and I was in my twenties. I can tell you that when I walk into the room of a fifty some year old man with cancer and as 20 something year old kids sitting around the bed i'm immediately transported back it's been 41 years 42 years and i'm still immediately transported back to that moment standing around my dad's bed and so there certainly are emotional aspects to what we do and i think that staying emotionally healthy having strong personal relationships that allow us to continue to process life and with whom we can have honest conversations not owning it as our own but understanding that somebody else's illness, somebody else's death, that, that really does allow us to be able to survive and do well in this field. But I think that the most important thing is that I, I don't feel so much sadness as, as, great or, as great opportunity to really help to touch someone at these vulnerable points in their life. And for me, that's just really that's just been really quite rewarding.
0: Whatever field we're in, we can really take a lot from that message. So one of the things that we've been meaning to talk about is changes that need to be made on a systems level. Yeah. Because you've said this, the sooner you get involved, the better, right? The sooner you get involved. If we're thinking about involving palliative care, then involve palliative care, right? For a number of reasons, it improves the patient's quality of life. It actually improves the span of their life. And and it often saves the system money to the point where right? Part of Obamacare, the death panel. What were the death panels in reality? Actually, they have a CPT code, the death panels, 99497 and 99498, which were 99497 is up to 30 minutes of end of life care discussion. And 99498 is an additional 30 minutes. So it was just a way to bill for end of life care, which is best for patients and save the system money, right? Because the end of life is can be very costly. So there, there are a lot of reasons. And actually, I am surprised that private equity hasn't made a, a foray into into this. But so especially as someone who's been involved for as long as you have, what are systemic changes that you would like? to?
2: I think some of them we've started to scratch the surface and alluded to earlier, the, the more acceptance and integration of palliative care into mainstream uh, medical uh, care. And I think that still needs to be done more intentionally, more upfront, in which we are looking at palliative as a very meaningful and reasonable resource in helping people manage chronic disease, advanced disease, or terminal disease, and not waiting until the very, very end to get these palliative practitioners involved. You are absolutely correct. If you look at the studies, and there have been a number over the last 11 and a half years that have really demonstrated the value of palliative care, not only in, in improving quality of life and improving symptom uh, burden, but allowing people to live long. This stuff works. If you could design a pill that would allow people to feel better, do better, live longer and spend less money, golly, how rich would we be? But that resource is already available and yet because it comes under the rubric of something that people have this, this psychological barrier against it still is is a bit challenging sometimes so i think that more broad acceptance and that understanding that the palliative care does not mean end of life it does not mean death and dying it means that you've got something that is going to be difficult to manage and we want someone to help you manage it better so that you can live better feel better do better and function better so that to me would be the one of the most important things and that 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 requires an educational uh, initiatives which we've tried to do here in grand rapids with uh, with both the general community in terms of understanding what it is and how they can benefit from it, and then also within the healthcare system. and uh, I remember doing a lecture once too uh, many universities have these colleges of lifelong learning, and they you know they basically are uh, non-credit classes that they offer for the elderly who are still interested in uh, academic pursuits. And I was doing a lecture for a number of people in West Michigan and and I finished my lecture and some, you know, hand went up and said I really don't have anything going on but how can you be my doctor? And what she was responding to is the that attitude of trying to help people live well and allow their values and what's important to them to really guide the care that they ought to be getting that I think resonates with people. And I don't know, and I would love to see a strong values based orientation. I think that within the healthcare systems we have, certainly the way that you were trained and I were, and I was trained is to fix things. We identify broken things and we work to try to fix them. And that results in a lot of things happening to people in the, under the guise of trying to fix things, oftentimes things that can't be fixed. And yet we still are pulling out, um, all the stops in trying to make that happen. I serve on a, an ethics consortium through the, within the state of Michigan, uh, where hospital ethicists from a number of different systems get together on a fairly regular basis. And you can imagine that the, at the advent of the COVID pandemic, we got together we were getting together three times a week. To talk about everything from critical resource allocation to how do we as a healthcare citizens make decisions on, you know, who gets what, anything from PPE to ventilators and ICU beds. And then it was how do we ethically approach visitation policies? And then it was vaccinations and who gets what when? And so all these sorts of things. And I remember very early on, I, one of the ethicists, uh, said, what we've had to do in our institution is is make a critical evaluation of someone before they come into the ICU. We have to really ask ourselves, is this patient going to survive this ICU um, admission, regardless of what we do? And we recognize that many people we know coming in will not survive the hospital stay, let alone an ICU admission, aggressive care, and ventilation. And if we know for certain that they're not going to survive, we're, we're staying up front, we don't think this is a good idea. And In a somewhat sarcastic tone, I said, oh, so what you're saying is that you're doing now what you probably should have been doing all along. Why would we be doing something to somebody when we know that they don't have any chance of surviving that? And yet still, every day, in just about every hospital in the United States, we're still doing stuff like that. And I think palliative sensibility and engagement in the palliative team with the palliative team would help to really bring a, a greater level of sensibility about how we approach those types of things. And just a, a parenthetic thing, you had mentioned about private equity. What I can tell you is that there is a movement afoot in the United States by which hospices are being acquired and merged in an alarming rate by private equity firms, because they recognize the, the profitability in the model. And so it's happening. I think that the place where where people really save, where systems really save on, on, on palliative interventions are the payer sources. Because when you have really strong palliative care, you, as you already alluded, uh, it, it costs less to care for these people. And those that are responsible for paying the bills are all about this. And they've had to take a, a very cautious approach, quite frankly, because of the death panel argument there a few years back, that they are not making decisions simply to save money, because it will, but because people do better when you do. I, that's my overall system approach. We just need to make sure that people are understanding what we do, why we do it, and to integrate this at a higher level and understand that fixing things is not always the right answer.
0: Fantastic discussion. I really appreciate all the time you've taken to, to talk to us and teach us about about palliative care. Where
2: can people find you online? The, uh, the main source of, uh, of what I do is through an organization called the Trillium Institute. And it's uh, Trillium just like the flower, an institute just like an institute. And it's trilliuminstitute.org. And, and we set ourselves up about six, seven years ago as an educational institute. And our intent is to, within the West Michigan area, to uh, foster both the supply and demand of palliative practitioners. So we we foster the demand by teaching people in the community to to understand what what palliative care is and what end of life resources are going to be available for them, and then we also then the um, foster the supply by doing a lot of work within the healthcare systems. I do a lot of work. We were successful in getting our local medical school to have a mandatory palliative rotation for all students in their second year. We started um, a fellowship program. We helped to foster starting two other fellowship programs. Uh, so we're really seeing a, a great I- integration of palliative resources. Because of our West Michigan coalition of palliative docs, we see a very consistent application of palliative talent, resources, and approaches across the region. And in 2018, maybe there was an article published, I think it was in the Washington Post, did the, the more public presentation of that, in which they identified Grand Rapids as the number one place in the United States to die. And a lot of the things that they used within their metrics of measuring that were really quite consistent with what we are trying to do, the types of values that we're trying to instill in both the medical community as well as the community to understand um, the benefit of palliative. So trilliuminstitute.org, there's a lot of resources for people that they can find on that website. For more information about me, I I, I don't often promote this, but johnmulder.org is my own personal website so that's out there as well. That's more music than anything else, but I think music can be healing. So,
0: Looking at your bio photo right now, have you lying in what looks like the prairie playing your guitar?
2: That's actually dune grass so right on the shores of Lake Michigan. So,
0: Well, John Mulder, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
2: Brad, I really appreciate you uh, giving me this opportunity and a uh, chance to share with folks. I appreciate this very much.
1: That was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.